I'm going to talk to you. This is the final in the series on seven things to do so that you finish well. Uh, uh, when I was given the responsibility of mowing the garden, mowing the grass, uh, my dad didn't want me just to finish. He wanted me to do it well. Does that make sense? Okay. Some people can wash the wear and you never ask them to wash them again, do you? Because they didn't do it well. All right. So there is a way to finish life and actually have regrets and actually have a life that you kind of look back on. You go, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Paul didn't want to have that. Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul is, as we've said each time, he's saying goodbye to the Christians at Ephesus. Ephesus is a town right on the edge of Western modern Turkey, and he's heading on to Jerusalem. Everyone that he meets and talks to says, we sense something is, is ahead of you, and it's not good, Paul. Um, there's danger, there's prison, and even death ahead of you. But Paul is determined to finish well. He wants, no matter how he dies, no matter when he dies, he wants to have done what God saved him to do. Acts chapter 20, look at verse 22. We're going to read 22, 23, and 24. Behold, verse 22, and now behold, I go bound in the spirit into Jerusalem, not knowing the things which shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. Watch those, underline those words, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was going to keep going. Now, let me give you an illustration. I read this past week, I was looking on, uh, uh, looking up examples of people who attempted to do hard, long treks or things. And I found a, found a, a story of a professor at a Christian college uh, in California. And they went up to, let me give you a map. They went up to the top up in Canada. And there is a track here all the way down, which is a hiker's trail along the mountain range all the way down to the, to the border with Mexico. It is a thousand miles long, and he and his son were going to hike it. All right, Eric, it's for you, okay? He's got your name all over it. Together, this father and son, they loved hiking. They were going to hike through the mountains of Washington and Oregon and the entire length of California top to bottom. At various points along the way, they camped above 10,000 feet. They were up there, and it was always freezing up there, and they faced every sort of discouragement. Uh, they, they ran out of food and water. They didn't go along the highway so they could stop at a McDonald's. They went the hiker's way, and so they ran out of food and water. They faced dangers from wild animals. There were dangers from robbers. There were days upon days of rain and muck incredible physical exhaustion and a very real possibility of physical injury or death. Not to speak of all the loneliness, the blisters, the mosquitoes and extreme heat and cold. Before leaving for the trip, however, this professor, the good student that he was, uh, discovered and he did some research. He said, right before I try to do this, he had never done this long hike that very few people actually try and do. But he discovered that over 90% of those who set out to hike more than 500 miles. I'll hike five miles. Who hikes 500? But he found out that over 90% of those who set out to hike more than 500 miles never finish it. 90% never finish it. 50% never, never even get started. So you'll find out of 100 people talking about, I'm going to do a hike of 500 miles. Um, 40%, uh, sorry, 50% never get started. They'll talk, 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 and they'll walk out. Um, 40% quit sometime along after they start. Only 10% ever finish such a long distant hike. So he's actually, he says, well, I better study these 10% because I want to finish. And he came to the following conclusions. He wrote that some of the, of the success involves strenuous training and meticulous logistical preparation for every step of the hike. You know what mountain you're going to be going over, you know what angle you're going to be climbing, you know what descent and what's the height. And so you plan all that out. Okay, but he says there was something else involved. He discovered that those who succeeded clearly understood that the biggest hindrance that anyone faces on a long hike is in their head, not on the outside. 
Successful hikers know that their real enemy is within themselves, not anything else. You see, those who succeeded a hike of 500, 600, 1,000 miles make two important decisions before they ever step outside their door. You know what they are? Number one, they decided they would finish the trip. That's what they decide. If you're going to finish, you have to decide that you're going to finish, no matter what happened. And secondly, mentally, they expected bad things to happen. And they decided that they would not be surprised or dismayed by anything that happened. And they would just keep going all the way to the end. So those two things, I'm going to finish. And secondly, and I'm going to expect bad things to happen. That makes it so that you finish. So when the rains turned the trail into a bog, when they met bear after bear and lion, and not lion, but cougar and, and uh, uh, other wild animals, um, they didn't quit because they weren't surprised. When black, he writes, he says, when black clouds of mosquitoes descended upon us like some Old Testament plague, we expected them. When we faced days of loneliness and nights of hunger, we didn't quit because we knew it would be like this. So in simple words, successful backpackers adopt a certain kind of thinking. They know that the key ingredient was simply putting one foot in front of the other until they reach the end point of their map. So in the same way, Christians put one foot in front of the other, and eventually our journey is one day finished. I read another story, and I can't tell you too much about it. There's this guy, uh, uh, a marathon runner who taught people to run marathons. He said, when you get ready to run that marathon, you must have one image in your mind, that there is a finish out there. And it may be 26 miles down the road. You may not see it, but in your mind, you go, there is a finish line, and I want to finish it. Because that's what Paul's approach was to life. That no matter what happened to him, he was just going to keep moving forward for the great, by the grace of God. He wasn't ever discouraged. You don't find Paul discouraged very often. He accepted prison like a hotel room. It was part of his journey. He accepted all the rejection because it was part of being a Christian. But let me tell you, the truth is, we Westerners, we're very surprised by trouble. We think the Christian life ought to be generally easy but it's not any more than climbing, whether it's Karak Tool or going on a thousand mile hike. Our enemy, the devil, aims to fight us like a storm every step of the way. So be it. Can you say that? So be it. It doesn't matter. We want to finish. So uh, I like just, just getting a picture. Can you imagine the views they got to enjoy? Can you imagine what the time that a father and son got to experience because they went on such a hike that so few get on. What made it so that they even set out to do is because they wanted not to just do the hike, but they wanted to finish it and how marvelous it would have been. So because it's in scripture, it's not just Paul talking to Christians then, it's God talking to Christians now. We need that same kind of tenacity, that same kind of push to finish well as well. Wouldn't you like to finish your Christian life well, shouldn't you? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to finish happy instead of full of regret and bitterness? Wouldn't you like to finish doing what Jesus saved you to do? Wouldn't you like at the end of your life to be actually mature, grown up, stable, faithful, and courageous? Well, the Christian race is not won by the swift. It's not given to the smartest or the wealthiest. It is finished by those who determine to finish. If you study, now there's well over a hundred lives in, in the scriptures, different people, David, Moses, so on and so forth. When you study those main people, their biographies described in the Bible, you'll discover that two-thirds of them end their lives per, uh, poorly. God doesn't only talk about the gems and the bright and the wonderful success stories. He exposes people who fail to finish the race and finish it poorly. Some turn to immorality some drifted away from God. Some let the world rob them of the greatest life that any human could ever live, the life of faith. But the Apostle Paul was not going to be among them. He wanted to finish well. Go to 2 Timothy now. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 6. I'm hoping that by the end of these five weeks, these verses have become familiar to you. But 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, For I am now ready. He's writing from prison. He's a few days from 
death. Nice says, I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I'm going home. I have fought a good fight. Look at these words. I have finished my course. I'm at the end point on my map. I've crossed that finish line. And I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I want you to, in your mind, remember those words. There is laid up for me, it's waiting for me, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that also that love his appearing. Moses was able to say, I finished my course when he died. He wished he could have gone a little bit further, but he did what God asked him to do. Sarah, Abraham's wife, finished well. How about Ruth, the Moabitess, who shouldn't have been anywhere near a person that you should be trying to emulate in the Bible? And there she is. She finished her life well. She was the great, 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 great grandmother of David. How about Joseph, young Joseph? Much as he went through, he finished well. Peter messed up, didn't he? And yet he finished well. And Stephen, standing on precipice of a small hill right outside of Jerusalem, within view of Calvary where Jesus had been died, had been crucified. There he stood and he preached, and with all of the passion, all of the energy of John the Baptist, he gave the gospel one last time before they began to throw stones at him and killed him. But he finished well. Why? Go to Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25. Why would anybody, why would Paul, Moses, Sarah, Ruth, Peter, and a couple other dozen men and women put up with so much heartache, so much trouble, so much pain? Matthew chapter 25. Jesus tells about it in the future, talking about a future time where we will give an account to God. It's called the, for us, it's called the judgment seat of Christ. Matthew 25 and verse 21. Speaking in the parable, Jesus tells of a time where people will gather before him and the Lord will say unto each servant, the Lord said unto him, well done. Some of them he'll say this to. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. So evidently, in the end, Jesus is going to personally reward and award your and my faithfulness with such joy and, 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 and reward that we can't even comprehend it. Let me give you an illustration. There was a coach just a few years ago of an American football team called the Ohio State Buckeyes. I would like to play for the Buckeyes. You don't even know what a Buckeye is, okay? When I was a kid, a Buckeye was a black-eyed pea. But anyway, uh, he gathered his team for one final talk before the start of their final and most important game of the season. After going over the game plan with his players, Coach Jim Tressel asked his team one simple question. How do you want to be remembered? So he's talking to a group of, these are not professional players. These are college students. They are, they are uh, getting ready to play other college students. College football is kind of big in America. It's kind of local football and things. It's really a big thing. America's like really too much of it. But he asked those young men, how do you want to be remembered? And he urged them on like they were about to play the biggest game of their life. Well, it must have worked because when the game was over, the Buckeyes had pulled off <laughs> one of the greatest upsets by defeating the other team called the Miami Hurricanes. Up until that time, they had won 34 consecutive games, 34 consecutive matches. And here come the Buckeyes who heard echoing in the ear their coach saying, how do you want to be remembered? And they played like they wanted to be remembered as winners. And they won. So it still echoes here several years later, even over here in Ireland. Now we don't really pay much attention to American football, but I do think about the question, how do I want to be remembered? What do I want people think when they look back on my life and they remember something about my life? Do they see somebody who was lazy? Do they see somebody who was apathetic? Do they see somebody who barely did anything for the Lord? I've only got a few more years. If I live as long as my mom, I might live 30 more years. Amen. But I have no guarantee of tomorrow. Do you? How do I want to be remembered is not something that I decide 10 years from now. It's what I decide now. Does that make sense? 
So I've gone through, and this is all review here, six of the seven ingredients if you're going to finish well. Number one, we all need to have consistency in our life where we just do it, whether storm, weather, um, uh, health, um, uh, poverty, um, trouble. You Listen, if there's anything that will keep you from serving God, the devil will put it in your lap. Amen? If there's nothing that will stop you from living for God, then the devil will walk away. He, If he can't discourage you, he'll find someone else. Give him no reason to stop you. Be consistent in your life. You don't have to be the rising perfect star. You just have to shine. Ministry. When we looked at the Apostle Paul, these are all the things that are part of that address, that that heart-to-heart um, uh time that he spent with the with the Christians there at Ephesus, he told them, you've known my life, my manner of life from the start. You've seen a consistent life and you've seen me work hard at serving, not just people, but serving the Lord. He then says, but I did it not for me. He says, with all lowliness of mind, he wasn't thinking of himself. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself. He wasn't trying to make any money. As a matter of fact, he was often poor, naked. He was destitute. He had to work his own job. He had to work uh, uh, making tents for other people just to get along the way. He didn't mind that because that's the Christian life. Tenderness, he says, with tears and temptations. He was tempted to quit. He was tempted to get angry and to just fight back at all of the abuse that he uh, endured. But he stayed hurtable. It's probably not a word, is it? But you know what I mean by it. He kept his heart soft. One of the things that is so important is that a tender and and soft heart will actually make it possible for God to encourage you. Then if you keep your heart hard, he can encourage a hard heart. Then we talked last week, we talked about intensity. He says, I held nothing back. When it was time for soul winning, I went like it was the last day that soul winning would ever be allowed. If there was, if I was home with family, I loved them like it was the best and the most important thing that I could ever do at that moment. Everything he did, he did with intensity. Could we we use a dose of that? Could we use a dose of that at the job that when they look at you, they see you every day pulling out your sack lunch, pulling up your sandwich, and you pulling up your Bible. They go, there goes Ledbetter again, reading that book. Here comes Ledbetter again with another gospel track. Here comes, he won't shut up. (laughs) Intensity. You just love what you do as a Christian and then enjoyment. Uh, I I can't encourage you enough to find joy in your Christian life. Don't think of it as, oh, I got to go to church. Oh, I got to read my Bible. Well, you do, but there's joy in it. There's joy in it because it's the truth. How many of you are tired of all the constant barrage of fake news and everything that's just coming around? You can't make sense of it all. I'll I'll keep with one truth, amen. One thing that I can stay on and enjoy. But we got one last thing I want to talk about from the life of Paul, and that was hunger. One final ingredient. Let me pray one more time. Please, please, Lord, help me be right to the point. Help somebody today. Lord, that, that every one of us look at our lives and go, you know, I, 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 I have been given a second chance to live now. Before, I lived only for myself. Before, it was a dead-end street. But now you put me on a, a better road. I, I'm running a, a better race. And, and this race is worth running and finishing. So, Lord, this, this morning, please uh, uh, convince us that we need to hunger for something that's just on the other side of the finish line. I pray we yearn for it. God, we'd understand it and we'd say, yes, that's the reason I'm going to be able to stay going forward. Lord, help somebody get saved today, whether online or sitting here, Lord, this morning. Let somebody know that they know that they know that Jesus loved them and died for them, and they can believe and be saved today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll go back over there while you're going there. Well, let me hold. I, I actually, I better not. Let me take you back to Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Forget that. I've got to, I want to just say a few things and get out on time here. Ecclesiastes. Back in the Old Testament, you find Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. All there, four little books there. 
find, well, Psalms not book, little book, but Ecclesiastes is a small book. You can miss it. Chapter 7 and verse 8. Why would Paul want to finish so much? Why was it so important for him to finish? Well, Paul had something in view. Paul could see something down the line there. And listen to the wisest man who ever lived, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8. Better is the beginning of a thing. Is that what it says? Not at all. And yet, isn't that true for when we experience? I mean, when everybody gets together at the beginning of a party or, you know, you're celebrating somebody's birthday or when, you, when you're starting a new job, the excitement level is fantastic, isn't it? And when, when I got saved, I remember the day I got saved. I, ran, I drove home. I went into my mom's room. The TV was on. She was sitting up in bed reading a book. And I jumped on her bed and I says, Mom, you got to The best thing that ever happened happened to me tonight. She said, what happened? I said, I got saved. I remember the joy of it. I remember the excitement of it. But listen, the Bible doesn't say that's where the joy is. There was joy. But the Bible says, better is the end of it do i do i believe that that's the best joy i'll ever have is is it possible that a christian's only going to have joy and thrill and and such such um uh, excitement just on the day they got saved and then after that it's all downhill sounds like a marriage to me doesn't it modern marriages are oh you get you spend all that money on the wedding and it's all a great first day and then after that is all down after downhill after that wouldn't that be sad? That's how we see Christianity, though. We say, well, it hadn't been so that it kind of turned out kind of rotten. Not according to the Apostle Paul, not according to Solomon. Keep reading. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit. What's a rule for a runner or even a hill walker? Be patient. Just keep going. Better is the patient in spirit than the proud in spirit. Most people who quit. They got offended. They got upset. <laughs> Everything went wrong and their pride was hurt. So better is a thing at the end. So now I can say, uh, just, like, um, uh, just like Solomon, why did Paul want to finish so badly? Because finishing is the best part. That's why Paul says in Acts 20, you might be able to remember it. See if you, see if you can remember it. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course and the ministry, or finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul, I guarantee you, the first day he got saved, he was on cloud 99. Amen? You know, a year later, I believe he was on cloud 99. I believe a couple of years later, he's on cloud 199. It got better and better. And then after that, he says, the best day of my life is when I walk across the finish line into the presence of Jesus. Folks, let me, let me get to my point. Finishing is the best part. And the reason why it's the best part is because there's a prize to be won. Go to 2 Timothy. Go back to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 6, 2 Timothy 4, 6 says this, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, from this moment on, I am crossing the finish line. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Paul uh, uh, knew that beyond death was a reward. Being saved is not something you earn. It is a gift. But ever since I got saved, I found out there are things ahead that make everything I go through worth it. What are they? Well, every athlete knows about the prize that they work for. Somebody put all that time in there. Now, yeah, they get a lot of attention, they get a lot of admiration for the muscles they build up, stamina and their so on and so forth. But if they're ever going to be an athlete, if they're ever going to compete, they're competing for the prize. Every Olympian 
every boxer, every soccer player, every hurley player, and even every chess player <laughs> knows about the prize at the end of the event. Go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. First Corinthians 9, 24, know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, all right? So run that ye may obtain. So everyone's running in there to obtain a prize. Good. You ought to run too, so that you may obtain. And everyone, 25, that striveth for the mastery, strives to pass that finish line, is tempered in all things, now they do it for a to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Now in the Greek games, the old Greek Olympian game, can you imagine there were people who trained and they ran and they did all kinds of crazy athletic events that nearly killed them. And if they won, they would approach Caesar. And when they came up to Caesar, the emperor of the world of the day, they would come up to them, but it wasn't Caesar at that time, it was just whatever was the emperor at the day. When they came up, they would bow, and the emperor would pick up one of the most flimsy branches of an olive tree, made into a semicircle, well, into a circle, and they would place it on the head, and the crowd would go crazy, and that guy would go home. All that effort for a bit of a leafy vegetable, okay? An olive branch. Folks, that's why Paul says the Olympians, they, they did everything for a corruptible crown. That crown wouldn't last four days before it started to shrivel up and die. But we do it for an incorruptible crown. We do, we do it for a prize that never fades. Paul calls it a crown. I've never touched a crown, have you? I, we went, we went to, uh, to um, England. We went to the Tower of London where they have the, the crown jewels. You know what we found out when we walked out of there? Those aren't the real ones. They had, they, the real ones were kept in a vault 200 feet below ground. Those things are fake. They're, they're, they're just make-believe. They're just, you just, oh, and they weren't even the real thing. I've got a real thing waiting if I finish my course. I just comparing somebody after all the effort, after all, and most of the Olympians of the Olympics actually died because of the heat, because they didn't, have, they didn't have ambulances and they didn't have people who were able to take care of them if they passed out or whatever. So when they would survive and they would win, that's all they got, that brief moment to be seen by everybody as a winner and they go home. But folks, let me tell you, and, and, and nowadays, everybody gets these gold, silver, and bronze stones, and fair dues to them. They earn it. But that's nothing that can be compared. When we stand before Jesus and we bow, and if we have been faithful, the Bible says we get a crown. And I don't understand that because I know this. I'll never be worthy of it. But there is. Paul says it's not just for him. As we would lift up and say, in honor of Paul, he probably is worthy of every crown he got. There's no doubt of it. What about us? The question is, do you even know about the prize? Have you ever contemplated, have you ever thought about what there is ahead of you and whether you're going to get anything at the end of your life? You can know about it and you must know about it. So what do we do? All right. What do we do so that we don't quit? All right. Number one, learn about the prize. I would say most Christians are almost completely unaware of the prize that Jesus has waiting for faithful men and women. Most Christians are unaware of it. They fight for scraps here. They battle over crumbs. They hoard things that turn to dust. But the truth is, the prize that Jesus offers the Christian is real. Go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 and verse 27.
Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he, what's the next word? Then shall he reward every man according to his works. Do you get saved by works? Yes or no? No. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But there is a reward for works after you got saved. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 actually has a verse 10 to it, doesn't it? And the verse 10 says, we were saved, we were recreated, we were created unto good works, to do good works. And the prize is real for those who actually do good works. Go to Revelation 22. Last book of your Bible, almost, well, it is the last chapter, almost to the very end of your Bible. Revelation 22 in verse 12. The promise is this. Revelation 22, 12. Behold, Jesus says, I come quickly and my reward, there's that word again, is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. So there is a prize, it's real. Secondly, it's priceless. It's more, it's of more value than can ever be imagined. Go back to Matthew 6. Hebrews 11 as well. Go to, uh, hold your place here in Matthew. Well, no. Yeah, hold your place here in Matthew 6. We'll come back to it in a second. And in your right hand, find Hebrews chapter 11. And when you found Hebrews chapter 11, then go back to Matthew chapter 6. I just love making your life tough and complicated. No. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. I'll show you the reasoning here in a moment. Lay not up for yourselves, Matthew 6, 19, treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and guess what? Where tax collectors sneak through, uh, break through and steal. <laughs> Thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What's a treasure? That's something invaluable. That's something that people kill to find and get. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Now, quickly go to Hebrews 11, verse 24. Hebrews eleven twenty-four. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. How wealthy could he have probably been? In the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh didn't have a son at that point, but he had a daughter, and the son of Pharaoh's daughter was next in line to possibly be emperor of Egypt and of the world. And he refused the wealth and the power of that position. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a seed. It's in verse 26, esteeming. That's just a big word. It just means valuing the reproach of Christ, the mockery of Christ, as greater riches than all the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect. <laughs> I like that word. He, he got gobsmacked. He had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He said, there's a greater payoff if I just stay with the people of God and I do what God calls me to do than it would be for me to be the king of the world. It's priceless. It's also appropriate. You know, all the suffering of Christians in times past, and, and if you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and I encourage you to get you a copy of the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, we've had them here before. You start to read that, you'll put it down going, I don't know if I can finish it. Finish it. It's tough reading. But let me say, let me, what I'm getting at is every one of those people during the Dark Ages, when it was seriously hard to be a Christian, when it was illegal to own a Bible, it was illegal to translate the Bible, it was illegal to stand up and preach anything but what the Catholic Church said. And people lost their lives. All of those people, it is appropriate that God's going to make it up to them. There is a value of God saying, whatever you go through, I'll make it worth it. I'll make it worth it. Everything you and I go through will be rewarded one day. As a matter of fact, there are five specific crowns for the Christian. I don't have time to go through them all. But let me describe for you, there is the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2. A crown of rejoicing. 
that crown I call the soul winner's crown because it makes up for all the burdens and the sadness and the sorrow of soul winning. Soul, soul winning is exciting, but if you ever do it for very long, you'll walk away after rejection, after rejection, after rejection, and you'll be burdened for the people that you're witnessing to, and it will break your heart that they refuse the greatest gift ever, and your broken heart will be rewarded with a crown of rejoicing. Another crown is the crown of righteousness. That makes up for all of, we call it the seeker's crown because you seek the, the, a, a life that live, that's lived to a different drum beat. It makes up for all the efforts you put out doing the will of God. You say, I just want to do the will of God. And there's a crown of righteousness proven that God's right for your life. The crown of knowledge. Proverbs 14, call it the Bible student's crown. Every Christian is commanded by God to study their Bible. This command is not in vain because you're rewarded for knowing this book, even, even to the point where it just it becomes part of your life. This book of the law is not supposed to part, to part out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. So shalt thou make thy way prosperous, so shalt thou have good success. There's reward making this book part of your life and the Bible calls it the crown of knowledge, the crown of life we just read about, which is the sufferer's crown, which is somebody who may lose their life doing the will of God, which is what Paul was experiencing. But God was going to make it up with a crown of life. And then there's a crown of glory. And that's the, that's the servant's crown. You know, when you reward those <clears throat> who only seek to abuse you and only seek to take advantage of you, when you reward them with humble love and and, and service, and you just go ahead and serve anyway. The, uh, the servant's crown, where nobody gives you any honor, and you're at the end of the line. I remember, I mean, uh, uh, I was usually the last one picked for the sports activities at school. Anybody else like that? Was anybody else like that? The last one picked. Okay, you get led better. Okay. Well, there is a crown of glory for those who are last in line. See, those crowns make up for whatever you've endured or taken up. Folks, they're appropriate. The crowns match what you go through, and they're available to any Christian who would just stay faithful. But it gets us to the point, and that is, what do you do? Learn about them and then hunger for them. I got news for you. You ready? God is not a socialist. God is not a communist. He does not. He does not run a late, late show. He doesn't have a gift for everyone in the audience. He has given you the gift of his son. But everything after that in heaven that you have, that you can enjoy, that you will be able to hold to and point to and say, that was given to me by my Lord for a little bit of effort. Everything that we could ever get comes because we earned it, because we're rewarded for it. God doesn't reward people just because they're saved. That is, that is a great gift. He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Hebrews chapter 11 again. Maybe you're still there in Hebrews 11. Just verse 6 says this. Hebrews 11, 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. So I need faith. Amen. Good. For he that cometh to God. You're trying to pray? Trying to serve God. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. He's everything you need. And that is he, that he is a rewarder. There's our word again. Of them that diligently seek him. Jesus only rewards the finishers, folks. The joyful, the humble, the persecuted, the peculiar. He rewards the hurt. The soldiers of the cross who just keep going until the finish line. Not because we find it easy. Well, because we know it'll be worth it. So the idea is hunger for the prize, like somebody out in the desert striving to get to a water supply. Do you know, it's perfectly okay to want to win the prize that Jesus has for you. It is perfectly okay to work harder than everyone else at serving other people. Jesus said, I want a competition among my people. Jesus actually said that I want a competition. He who would be greatest must be what? Servant of all. To be, to be the greatest, you've got to seek to be the chief servant. 
Wouldn't it be awesome if, if, if we worked hardest at serving, at loving, at suffering? There's a reward, reward for those who hunger for the prize, no matter what they go through. I've watched these, what are they called, Iron Man contests or something up country? They, have, they, they dig these trenches of muck. They're like 20 feet long and these climb, uh, uh, climbing towers and things. And people nearly kill themselves going through. What, am I, what are they called here? Aren't they called Iron Man competitions or something? What are they called here? You're all looking at me like they have different names. Tough, tough what? Tough mutter and all this stuff. Okay. So, but all these guys go through such stuff. I mean, it's embarrassing. It is stinking. It is tough. And, and what are they doing it for? There's a prize. There's a prize. And it's okay while everybody else is striving that you strive more. I believe it's actually wrong to not want to win something as a Christian. I believe it's a sin for you to just sit there week after week and do nothing for God. Amen. It is perfectly right if somebody, listen, if somebody in this church, if several somebody's got more excited than you, you'd look at them and go, oh, and look at them. <laughs> but it's actually perfectly right for everybody to be so on fire and passionate for the Lord. Because I want to say this. You need to fear losing the prize that the Lord has for you. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6. We often refer to these scriptures at a, at a funeral for a Christian. But it works for us too. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 6 says this, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We're not with Him yet. For we walk by faith here, but not by sight. Verse 8, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Amen. But look at verse 9. Wherefore, because of that truth, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You worry about getting pulled over by the guard for speeding? You worry about having to go to court because you haven't paid a bill or something like this? You need to worry about standing before the Lord Jesus Christ someday. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Do you know how to lose rewards? And you need to consider this. Don't even try to win. You see, what they do in a boxing match is they show off a cup or a prize or a belt. I'm not sure what the belt value is, but anyway, uh, all of these, they show off the prize and they put two guys in there to beat each other senseless. And, and they... Um, but can you imagine showing off that prize and then somebody getting into the, the, uh, uh, the ring and another guy sitting in his seat over there saying, I'm not even going to start. The prize that was for him, if he'd get into the ring and stay up in the ring, he's forfeited because he didn't even get started. There are too many Christians who haven't even started yet. That's how you lose the prize that's there. Cheat. You know how to lose the prize? Cheat at being a Christian. Start retaliating for wrongs against you when Jesus said vengeance belongs to God. You know how the quickest way when you're putting up with suffering and things are not going right, the quickest way to blow a reward for you staying humble, for you staying like Christ, is to turn into like the devil. <laughs> Cheat at it. Refuse to do good and love those that hurt you. You blow the prize. Rally around yourself all the time playing the victim. You blow the prize. Resist all the changes that the Holy Spirit is working into your life. You know, if we ever want to change wood and, and change the care sheets of that wood, we have to use tools on it. We have to do things to the wood. And if God ever has to change you, he'll put pressure on you. He's going to try and break things off that don't, don't belong in you. And when you refuse his changing work in your life, you blow the prize, the reward that's available for you. Or you can just quit the race. You can be like Demas. You can say, I love this world better than I love the next. I don't want the will of God for my life. I like my old ways. That's how you can lose the prize. And none of that is the way a Christian should live. Would you agree? I thought about this. What do we do? You got to decide. It's either FM or FJ. You ready? FM or FJ. Ooh. 
is either for me or for Jesus. Everything you do, you have to decide, is that, is, am I going to go through this for me? If I'm going to go through that suffering for me, I will turn into the devil himself. But if it's for Jesus, I'll stay at it. Amen. To the young man living alone, struggling on your own, don't trade in what you're going through for the world. To the young lady surrounded by a culture that doesn't care about you or for you, but only seeks to use you and abuse you, don't lose what you have in Christ and what God gave you. To the worn out mom and dad, don't let anyone do what God called you to do for your children. You say, I'm tired. I just want to get rid of these kids. You are going to get a reward. To the wife, to the husband, struggling, whatever. Don't lose it. Don't blow it. Hey, preacher, Craig, are you worn out doing the right thing? No one responding? Nobody laughing at your jokes? Just keep going. Children's church teacher, every hour spent preparing to teach and bless those children every week on a Sunday or at youth camp or at Bible club is going to be rewarded. And so every soul winner that gets discouraged because people aren't getting saved. I've noticed that people are getting harder to talk to. Every sacrifice that we make for souls, for Christ's sake, will be worth it. The last thought here is don't quit until you receive the prize. The best weapon against Quitting is having my eyes on what's just beyond the finish line, the prize, a crown, a reward. And that prize will help you stay faithful, knowing that Jesus makes it all worthwhile. We don't follow good teachings. We follow a living Savior who's just on the other side, who, Bible says, in this Christian race, he's at the beginning, he's along the way, and he's the ending. He's the finisher of our faith. One last scripture and we're done. Ecclesiastes, back to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. Ecclesiastes, chapter 12 and verse 13. It's a very famous message. You ought to look it up called Payday Someday. This scripture says that there is a day where... We're going to have to face the music. We're going to have to see what we've earned as a Christian. Or if you're not saved, you're going to see what you earn as a sinner. And the wages of sin is death, and then more death, and then more death that never ends. But as a Christian, folks, listen. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. 12, 13. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. I need to stay faithful all the way through because he knows when I'm unfaithful. He knows when I'm faking it. He knows when things aren't important to me. Don't quit until you receive the prize. I, uh, I read a story. I'm sorry, I read a poem, and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. This is a, a Christian man who uh, wrote this poem about finishing well. I like his name. His name is L. Allen Bacon. I like his name, Bacon. <clears throat> a photograph of yesteryear sits on the dusty shelf. The faded black and white contains a picture of myself. So much that's happened like that picture isn't very clear. For memory's a tricky thing that fades from year to year. It seems to me that I was young with all of life ahead, the dreams of what I'd say and do all filling up my head. But now the time for living large has had its day and time. And now I must confess that I'm no longer in my prime. But even so, I know that there's so much of life to live. The twilight years that I have left are still a time to give. And I would live them to the full and spend my final breath to change the lives of those in need ere mine should close in death. For what is life if not to live, to leave a mark on men? to make this world a better place before your last amen. And I would have it said of me when mourners bid adieu, he gave himself until the last and then quietly withdrew. I thought that was fantastic, folks. Consistency, 
ministry, humility, tenderness, intensity, enjoyment, and a hunger for the prize. That's a different way of thinking, wouldn't you agree? It's a preparation for, I just want to finish so that no matter what happens, I'm focused on the finish line. I'm focused on, on staying faithful, passionate, staying joyful as a Christian. I don't want to become like a lot of people I say that are just bitter, angry. They've hurt so much they don't know how to laugh. I want to finish. How do you want to be remembered? That was a question asked to a football team. It motivated them. Maybe it might motivate you. How do you want to be remembered? Well, people remember you as that was a Christian saved. They knew that they knew. I hate, I hate. Somebody says, do you think so-and-so saved? I go, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm not a judge, but wow, I can't tell. That'd be awful, wouldn't it? Would somebody like to look at your life and go, I don't know if Marcus is saved. Doesn't look like it to me. How do you want to be remembered? If you are saved, do you want to be known as a finisher or a quitter? Would you stand with me and let's bow in prayer? Father, it's been a real privilege to be together with some Christians this morning. And it's been a greater privilege to preach from your word and to convict not only my own heart, but to know that the word convicts the hearers. Lord, would you please help us this morning to humble ourselves and say, I've got wrong thinking. I know that if I go into the long distance of the Christian life, I'll quit. And I don't want to quit. I've already struggled with tears and temptations. I don't want to care about those anymore. I want to care about finishing. I want to care about crossing that finish line and then listening to you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That will mean it all. I've lived and thought and struggled for things that are only corruptible. And yet you have a, an award, you have a prize ahead, a high calling of God in Christ Jesus that is ahead of every person in this room and every person listening, if we would just stay faithful. We're going to have to forget some things. We're going to have to just one thing ahead of us, and may it be that prize. Thank you that Jesus is all along the way. We're not doing this on our own. We're doing it in his strength, by his grace. Lord, we're doing it for him. Lord, I just ask you to help us be finishers. In Jesus' name, amen.